0: We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once,
1: too. My country. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We, the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the US. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Mikhail Ronen. He is the freshest off-the-boat guest I've had on the podcast so far. Michael has just moved to the U.S. from Germany half a year ago. That's right, right in the middle of pandemic, election, protests, and wildfires. Because Michael is a futurist. He's an experienced designer, digital event producer, and the founder of Wonderland, an immersive design agency. Mikhail's background is in theater and throughout his career he has been creating projects and environments that allow for empathy and intimacy and especially in the digital and VR space which is definitely part of the future that we all will have to navigate and Mikhail is one of the pioneers in that field and so in this episode Mikhail tells me his story of leaving Israel, living in Europe, creating an immigrant theater over there, and then coming to the U.S. And here's our chat. My usual first question is, where did you come here from and when?
0: Where did I come here from? I My usual answer is, because I, I'm asked a lot where, where do I come from, is I come from my mother.
1: Right. Uh, and yeah. then... <laughs>
0: If people want to be more literate, so after I had two kids, I understood where exactly I come from, my mother. <laughs> so I point to that place, uh, and then uh, yeah, that, that's uh, I, I was born in Jerusalem.
1: Oh, we have and, some new 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 participants there
0: yeah that's uh, my my continuation she's also existing in my space that's also the how the remote work um, situation has become which is basically life and work
1: life and work work. it's 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 constant work and and life stream
0: okay cool i got new glasses she just gave them to me so that's me with my glasses
1: oh that's nice
0: (laughs) (laughs) she's so sweet (laughs)
1: Um, okay, well, so you were you were born in Jerusalem, is that right? Yes. Did you grow up there?
0: Uh, no, uh, I was a baby there for a year. And then I uh, was uh, moved with my parents to a suburb of Tel Aviv called Give a Time. Very, you know, a lot of blossom, may, many trees. And um, very, yeah, I would say quite beautiful childhood in this place.
1: It's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty hipster neighborhood these days, isn't it? I've been there.
0: Yes. Do you know yeah. Give a Time?
1: I do. I have friends who live there. I okay. am actually also an Israeli citizen. I am from Russia originally, but I lived in Israel briefly. Uh,
0: How would you describe it then?
1: Um, well, just as you said, like a suburb of Tel Aviv, but... Mm, but but it's not a boring suburb it's a pretty suburb with a taste yeah it's yeah
0: i I guess it's also developing the the funny thing about my childhood that i experienced a childhood that somehow would be more considered uh culturally speaking it was we were like street kids Mm-hmm. And uh, the neighboring, uh, I mean, give a time in Ramat Gan, nobody really understands what's the difference. And many times, give a time, and now in most of my adult life, I've lived in Ramat Gan. But of course, like they both represent, you know, the Ashkenaz Jews and the Mizrahi Jews and like the whole history of Israel of where did people come from, Mm -hmm. (laughs) talking about migration.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And and, like how people form neighborhoods that are some kind of cultural ghettos. And then you have all those kind of shadow societies living one next to each other with their own pride and, you know, their own narratives. Uh, Israel.
1: <laughs> Israel is a, indeed a country of immigrants. From 12, and... uh,
0: 12 <laughs> tribes, we became 120 mandats. <laughs> right? Exponential growth.
1: Only took 2000 years. <laughs> or more, depending how you count. Yes, and right. so, what did your parents do when you were growing up?
0: Uh, they were a hippie artists in Jerusalem. My father ran the Khan Theater. My mother was an actress who both did political theater in the 70s in Jerusalem. They did shows oh, that they my both God. Uh, were co-creating. And there was it was a mythological theater ensemble of the Khan. They were exploring uh, the art of kind of storytelling, a bit like uh, what I'm exploring now, like Augusto Boel. They had um, a guru or one could say like a, a theater mentor who Michael Alfreds, his name was, he was a, a British theater director. He did a lot of work like the complicité, like Peter Brook, a lot of ensemble creation. And he brought uh, both my parents together in the same space.
1: Wow.
0: My father w- already had a crush on my mother. She was an actress. My father was a director. And then the Yom Kippur War, when it was 73, the October War for the Arabs, that was uh, then when Michael Alfred, he left. Israel, and then suddenly, when they all came back, all the artists, um, Fava became the artistic director of this theater. It was quite young. And then they made it as a collective. They tried to do this kind of uh, almost, one could say, political hippie theater in the 70s. They did a lot of theater in the streets, a lot mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, Commedia dell'arte and did classics with political mm-hmm. edge, political satire. The rebelling in the system.
1: That's so cool. I love the Israeli art scene because it's very quirky and it's very, it's very underground feel and it's very idealistic and it's it's not as commercial as in other places. And it has its very different vibe than American art scene, wouldn't you say? I don't
0: know. I mean, I left when I was uh, 24, 15 years, maybe a bit more. Even the idea of uh, how to relate yourself to the place and to the art scene have changed a lot. I heard that after eight years of going away from Israel, if you don't go back, you might never go back. It's like a myth I heard somewhere.
1: Well, it is hard to go back anywhere after a while because it's not really going back. Place changes so much that it's a move again, like for me, to, with Russia, it's not going back. It's moving to a new Russia. Yes, exactly.
0: It's uh, because it's like I said, where I come from, my mother. Because the place becomes like the earth that was taking care of us when we were there. It's we have this uh, connection, and especially Jews in Israel, <laughs> the connection to the earth becomes holiness. And someone who was born in Jerusalem, his grandparents moved from Vienna to the Galilee and created the you know, socialist kibbutz and his parents created theater in, in Jerusalem. So suddenly, um, after 24 years uh, growing up there, and uh, especially after the three years in the Israeli army, during the Second Intifada, wow. exactly during the Second Intifada, from the day I was recruited. And that had, of course, great effect on my, let's say, consciousness and, and how I perceive things because I have seen more narratives that I wasn't really ready to see I guess I grew up in quite a a bubble especially in the art world uh, in Talma, Alina, I had my own safe space where I could explore uh, in high school and then suddenly in the age of 18 exactly on the day that Ariel Sharon went to Mount Temple and the uh, second the father started I was recruited I was hoping to go to the army theater but I was taken into the artillery oh my god and from one thing to another this situation um, uh, end up a bit like to anyone who knows the movie hair when the hippies sent to vietnam three years that i had no intention to be there from the first place but i had to try and adjust myself because especially during this time it was even more hard to go out from this context everyone were recruited because there was There would be bombings in the street in Tel Aviv, so people would be also even more furious. So those three years, I I went out and had more time to reflect. And there's a lot of people from my generation this time I know who are traveling the world. Um, There's so many questions there. And for me, I focused a lot of my creation in the theater to try and create spaces to um, deal with the, all those type of, uh, int- how would you say, narratives that were created in you? This is something that was a big factor to also my migration out of Israel. A year after, I mean, like many other Israels, I went to travel in South America. But I already knew somewhere from my pre-Army dimes in the high school that I had the, the intention to continue exploring things through theater and different mediums. But I guess after this service, it was even more clear to me is wrong in the way we are, uh, you know, going through uh, elementary school, high school army, at least in the Jewish-Israeli narrative context, and uh, how one needs to observe all the systems from outside. It's funny because sometimes somebody asks, am I a veteran? I mean, the fact that I'm in America and I have been in this army, but like, for me, this is, nothing that i'm heroic about right. you know because i'm so uh, it's so clear for me that it was uh, an abuse of, of you know how i work in the system and everything in my work was uh, inspired from that fact and uh, you know from there i took it to you know to try and create reconciliation right
1: I think I know what you mean when you say narratives that, you know, you, you're introduced to at a young age in Israel, growing through uh, school and then army. But can you please talk a little more about these narratives that you mentioned and this way that you couldn't accept and be with?
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, you. I think in Israel, and the vaccine now is such a good example. We are such an experiment this country is such an experiment in the making, if you think also in the context of time and other states. And still, in the context of this experiment, it has gone. Um, in some ways, uh, it's clear that things have been going wrong. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in the basis is the, the feeling, especially from Palestinians, that uh, they have been left behind and that the world have continued. And uh, I, I many Israelis understand that, in the end of the day, I mean, every country is trying to survive, but if you even think now about the situation with the vaccines, I mean, if Palestinians would be sick, Israelis would be sick, we are in one space, it's one country. And, uh, I mean, there needs to be a place of reconciliation. There needs to be a space uh, of, um, uh, of understanding where is our privilege and how do we... Admit uh, that you know we have this privilege and enter a conversation uh, that we are self-aware because I feel that uh, um, in many situations I've just realized people don't know they have not the experience and uh, they don't have all the narratives. So one of the first things is creating spaces for me again to, that people could listen.
1: Right. And so at the same time, so you were growing up kind of in the, in this, in the Jewish, on the Jewish side, right, with the, all those mm-hmm. Jewish narratives. And I don't want to put, you know, words in your mouth, but how would you describe that for somebody who doesn't know? What was it that uh, people grow up with?
0: I mean, looking back, where is the fatal error? Where is the space where something is started to be ignored? There, there was not a space to create bridges. It's interesting. There was no television. There was no Facebook. There wasn't, but still, people came in and each one lived in their own narrative, in their own. You know, they they could not create a a one state in that context. One came with a story of we need to survive, and uh, and clearly, like this is where I feel today talking with Palestinians, they feel something in their ancestor's story has been um, not considered. Mm -hmm. So the idea of shared narratives, for me, again, I'm just talking about for myself, it becomes a journey of exploration. How can I explore more? Like, would positioning myself as a Jew from Palestine, ex- like taking the existence, the two, as a futuristic utopia, right? A one-state existence, right? Well, how would that look like? Um, the, Jerusalem is a very narcissistic space in many ways.
1: I personally don't like that place, to be honest with you. I uh, it's so it's just it has a very heavy energy and it's so palpable. Uh, it's it's a fascinating place. And I always tell everyone, you, if you live in the Judeo-Christian world, which to degree we all do, everybody should go and visit at least once to see it and to see the source of everything.
0: If you a Jew, you need to go once a year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but so going back to your personal journey. So after the army, you go to South America, then you realize that you want to get out. So how did that decision come about? The decision to leave?
0: You, you know that Israelis travel the world. There is a thing called the wave. So the wave, Hagal, starts in, usually in the center. It used to be where you sit around and see other people want to travel South America or Thailand and people would be listening to each other Mm -hmm. before even Facebook. It would be like this and then next to it you can buy the equipment and next to it you can take the injections and buy the flight tickets. It's all in one floor, very convenient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then what happens is that when you travel as an Israeli, you could be inside the wave and jump between hotels that already have uh, deals for Israelis and restaurants that has menus uh, in Hebrew. I was in Cusco in Peru, and there was like a, a menu in Hebrew. Like, Fascinating! Yes,
1: so. I did not know about this. So that exists because because there is this tradition kind of in Israel be, to travel after the army, right?
0: Yes. So this is. I mean, my my thought is that this is created maybe in the subconscious of the society, not like specific people, maybe some entrepreneurs. Travelling, if you do it out of Israel, you go out of the narrative. And I think the idea of putting so many Jews from so many places in the world in one place is kind of, uh, it's absurd, right? Like what brings us all together? Like also, if you, if you think about how Judaism is celebrated differently in different places in the world. So part of the melting pot was creating shared narratives. And to keep people in this narrative, even when they travel out, I think you can see this kind of uh, what's called the phenomenon of people traveling together. So it it ends up that so many Israelis travel with Israelis throughout their trips in India, in Thailand, with their friends and so on. And they are kept in this uh, narrative of being Israel. Two days after I went to South America and immediately two days after I arrived and went into the tallest mountain and got an attitude sickness because i just climbed everything too high which is quite allegoric and then i did a pause and i i couldn't move anymore like for two weeks i was like uh, kind of uh, in a hostel hospitalized okay. i realized i need to slow down and i kind of moved out of the israeli wave if you want from the travel and in bolivia i moved to another hotel and then i got to know mm. who if not a french lady who put some political conscience in me then I moved to London and I started working in a restaurant in the Spitalfields market. I, I was doing the bar and there was a lot of people coming from conflict zones in this restaurant. And, and when I was doing it, I was mm-hmm. studying a, a theater in, in university and I realized there's something really interesting in not going away from these subjects, but confronting them and trying to understand where conflict comes and, you know, like... W- being with people who even were in the army opposing you, or in the the nation that you were thinking is hunting you, to be in the same space and to experiment. That's when it started for me, like this uh, exploration uh, in that restaurant in London.
1: Wow. And so what was this instigating moment for that change in that bar?
0: I mean, I was away enough time, and I understood that something is uh, that something needs to be dealt. the The July bombings in London, in really under the house where I was, the it was a tube station, in East. And suddenly, I felt like this whole reality is like coming back. And anyway, I was a year after the travel, and I realized I need to be dealing with this, even if I am doing arts and theater I need to do. So I formed this a theater group bringing people together to understand what is the unspoken everything was very commercial especially in the theater scene because you could make money also in the west end it felt that nobody is challenging the system and if it is I was also in the doing a writer's program in the royal court but there was criticism but, but It was still theater for those who could pay the, you know, the ticket to go to the royal courts (laughs) and Mm -hmm. who could get the seat. It all felt to me very privileged and I was wondering how can we go more to people a bit like the Augusto Boel or what my father tried to do in the 70s. So I thought, how could I recruit a group of artists from conflict zones? That was um, 2007. So we went to the assembly rooms of a group of artists from conflict zones, from Pakistan, from Kosovo, from Israel, Palestine, Egypt, Lebanon. It, it's, it bring a group of people together in this space, a little bit like in those movies, that a group of people find themselves in a space together, locked. And what we thought, working with a group of five writers who each one represents this ethnic group, that there, it's all like uh, shadow societies, especially in London, uh, living one next to each other, but there's not so much solidarity and conversation happening between the different communities, uh, although they are all minorities
1: and in the same predicament it's it's similar feeling that i have here in the states it's kind of one of the reasons that i created this podcast
0: i know that's why i'm doing this interview
1: <laughs> <Because>
0: <laughs> I, I really connect to your goal
1: yeah and so what happened with that play where did you take it
0: it was in the assembly rooms in uh, uh, the assembly rooms in the edinburgh fringe festival and it's funny because the person who did a movie about it a good friend of mine, Erz Galonska, is a founder of Infarm, which is a very big startup in Berlin today for indoor farming. Yeah. And uh, he made me, after this move, he moved to Berlin mm. because he said that this type of work would be better appreciated and there's more also funds. In many ways, he was right. I moved to Tachles Kunsthaus. I did some work there and met a lot of uh, more artists from the Middle East. In Bauhaus Naunenstrasse, there was a theater of uh, the assistant of Fatih Akin called Shermin Langhoff, a Turkish, what you call post-migrant. She created a concept in that context that post-migrants would be the children of the migrants who came in the sixties, like the Turkish, the Italian guest workers to Germany uh, to work in factories. And they, post-migrants would still have names like Shermin or Mehmet, but their first language would be German. Yeah. But to the general public in Germany, they would still be migrants. But the experience of being post-migrants is also like, <laughs> you know, the, my parents migrated and I'm now here to stay because I was born here. Um, and uh, this feeling that I'm still an alien in my own space. So this uh, f- our focus on a theatrical language was to go to uh, actors who never given the chance especially in the german landscape to play some main role no they were casted to the falafel or the kebab shop or you know mm-hmm. to the terrorists, to whatever they were not giving hamlet and macbeth and like the, all the no so she said no this place is only this which is interesting it brought some provocation Why you're not of course there were some germans who are white skin and <laughs> but the idea was uh going first to this type of artist and supporting them. And we grew a really interesting collective from that. As a result, it became uh, more conventional as this whole ensemble was accepted to the Maxim Gorky Theater. And the Maxim Gorky is a continuation of this concept. It's in East Berlin where the Russians were... So the Russians... uh, they uh, took this place, it was, the place itself was uh, by the German singing academy already from the king in the 1827, but what happened is that the place itself was still run by the Nazis during the war. The whole offices there were actually Nazi uh, party offices and the playhouse was still running. uh, There were collaborators. So the place was uh, bombed by the allies in 45 and they restructured it and the, the Russians rebuilt it. the the marmor on the hallway is from Hitler's council. So it's really like there was like a state of status. Here we rebuild it and they called it Maxim Gorky. Um, and it's still called. and that. of course, yeah, it's called like this. It was also under the DDR. It was a very successful theater and on the day of the fall of the world, it was celebrated that, and, and it somehow transitioned from East Germany to focus on migration, which is in many ways for many people, Turkish and this were the new other, because you always need an other. You need also, <laughs> it feels like in the world we grew up, you need a common enemy. You need the bad guy. <laughs> so in this way, by creating awareness, you know, the first project that we, I did with them in the um, Badhaus Naunin Strasse was, um, I went to a Turkish coffee house in Oikon for three months. Every day I sat down. Of course, I didn't speak Turkish. I didn't speak even German. But I had a friend, uh, I asked like an intern to come and translate it to me and I just wrote notes and I slowly, I was invited to the table and I was called Oduk, uh, which is duck in Turkish. And uh, I literally wrote a story for some of them and And we created an installation that while the place is open, there is a table with four earphones that the four group of spectators, audience comes in. Each one puts the earphone and they all hear simultaneously a narrative of who they are. Like you are Mm -hmm. Mehmet, you are Ahmed, you are 18, you are 55. You own the place, you work here, you Mm -hmm. sit here and so on. And you're also instructed what to do. Take your right hand, take the gloves, Mm -hmm. take the cigarette, take this and... So, you're being tracted what to do and what to say to each other. And it's so what happens is the people embody the narratives of the migrants who sit there instead of judging them or making a show about them, just being them by hearing their story on an earphone and playing them in a situation.
1: Wow. I love it. It's so creative and so inventive it
0: was interesting to see as as I was the only spectator, I was sometimes just checking if it Mm -hmm. works sitting in the corner (laughs) of this cafe four German women in their 70s come into a room, they sit on their table, next to it there's a group of 30 Turkish men and Lebanese men sitting around tables and then they just slowly those those four German women start to move and behave and talk like they're the Turkish men and It's what you see at least from the outside. From the inside, they are also hearing the stories.
1: That is so interesting. And it is so interesting that that uh story that you're you're telling me, that experience that you have gone through in Europe and how similar it is to the immigrant experience here in the States. I guess in that way, that is a universal narrative of an alien in the world, because I'm also, you know, in, in creative world, I'm, I'm a filmmaker by trade and a storyteller. For me, I was constantly I've been in the States now for 10 years, but I never wanted to be an immigrant. I kind of just happened to become one. It took me a very long time to accept what I am and that I am an immigrant and that I am an alien and that I always will be an alien to a degree. And I want to ask you, how did you feel when you were there working on those plays? Did you feel that you were an alien and how did you feel about that?
0: So I was constantly dealing with it all the time because I thought that that's my source of power also. Um, I always looked at it as a strength. And it's why, although I moved through the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, Uh, And they are really strong on raw pronunciation and for the acting students and so on. For me, somehow, something about the music of my accent is the only thing I have left. And it's interesting because in one of the plays we did, we said, in the the Sprache, the childhood. In the foreign language, the words have no childhood.
1: That is so true um,
0: And um, that, that kind of summons it up.
1: <laughs> now I do want to jump to your arrival here.
0: Oh, My God, I'm here. I'm in the US. Oh my God. yeah <laughs> here I am.
1: How did that happen?
0: Third time. So I've been in London, I've been in Berlin, and now I'm in the US.
1: How did that come about?
0: In the last eight years, I've been with tech startups, and I came to the US several times, especially in the last three years. I was working a lot. I had investors and clients here, and then I opened my own company, and I just moved here and started doing work with clients here. So I'm currently here with an investor design, doing my own uh, um, work on experiential design I've done a lot of work in the space of uh, e-commerce and uh, helping people on that space here. It's very big. Uh, Gomez food companies and companies were doing uh, their own digital transformation because I had my own startup. And, and Jump, I know it's big, like from theater to startup. Yeah. So how did you, an e-commerce, how did this happen? Wait, 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 what's going on here? Sorry, so we jumped in. <laughs> from my theater group, I... Um, in one moment in my life decided I want to explore technology to create theater on the Internet. So I created in 2012 a a company called the Capsuling Me, which did virtual time capsules so people could leave their song on a bridge during sunset. And uh, as well in 2015, very early on VR, uh, I created a company called Splash, which we did what we call democratized virtual reality. People could capture with their phone, their environment in 360 VR. What was then cardboard. You could just capture VR video on your phone by creating stimulus kind of looping videos like Vine in uh, organizing over space and time in a uh, frame around you. So you would then send those bubbles to other people like telepathic ethness. You know, here I am, here is where I am. It would be like a short, here is Mm -hmm. my reality right now.
1: And so how did the idea to come to the States uh, shape at first, at first I had
0: like with my first company, there was some interest to, to buy it in the end. I just licensed the stack and then uh, I came as my own agency. And uh, I had already clients here that uh, I started working and uh, I just thought that I've been many, many years in the winter in Europe and uh, I am trying to stimulate, uh, assimilate uh, uh, kind of uh, Tel Aviv in California right now. <laughs> well, it mind. is
1: a close. Uh, it's a close climate. I do want to get through that part of the story when you when you make the decision to move to the U.S. When did that happen? I think
0: five years ago. I said, okay, it feels like that could be the another change in in an environment, another landscape. I would like to. Oh. Because throughout the time I was doing the startup, I felt like this is an interesting space to to connect to. Uh, I mean, people are dreamers, especially in California. Sometimes they are over dreamers, but yeah. they're definitely dreamers. And uh, yeah, you think, okay, I'm going to America. I think people, when they move, they first move to a specific city today, right? Yeah. We're moving between cities. I think we chose Los Angeles because of where I work in terms of clients. We didn't know so much about it. We just knew there is uh, the sun and the beach. My wife works in the film, so we knew that there is a chance that uh, there would be a space that she would connect and work with. And
1: so when, when did you make the move?
0: During the COVID, during the pandemic, around half a year ago.
1: Wow. So that's, you know, you're the freshest immigrant on the podcast so far. You're literally right off the boat how did you make that decision to move in the middle of pandemic
0: so we wanted to move before the pandemic we also didn't know there would be a pandemic (laughs) we got our visa before the pandemic we were uh, uh, ready to move for two years but uh, also uh, my wife got pregnant so we waited in germany and then we waited a bit and then the corona came so we couldn't enter for for a very long time
1: Yeah, well, but I'm fascinated with your, you know, to be honest, with your bravery and your wife's bravery to make that step, because I know that many people. uh, I actually personally know several people who are immigrants here from other countries, from Ukraine, from um, from Eastern Europe you know, other places there who actually in the middle of pandemic said, well, you know what, it's just too hard. It's not worth fighting and went back because of how difficult it was. And, and to be honest with you, I myself had my worries about the situation here, because we know how, how intense the environment is here. And how did you feel about that? What were your thoughts coming here about the extremes?
0: It was hardcore, to be honest. <laughs> we came on the month of the election. Uh, we didn't have a house. We just moved between several places. We have all the time to change, you know? And it was suddenly all the shops were closed. There was woods on top of uh, shops. Uh, suddenly there, was, there were the fires. There was, um, you know, and there was the pandemic. And we came from Berlin where people were kind of at ease. But look now, you know, you can't go back to Berlin. Berlin, everything is closed. In California, slowly things are getting, you know, one under control and people get vaccinated. So things change. But we also gave birth during the pandemic. So you can say it was a crazy year anyway.
1: Wow, so many big changes. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. Tune in on Thursday for the part two of this conversation where Michael tells me more about his techniques of creating digital intimacy, which seems like that is something that we will all going to have to master at some point. So find Mikhail on Instagram and on Clubhouse. Find us on social media with the aliens podcast. Let us know what you think. Subscribe to our newsletter, all the contact info and links are in the show notes and on our website. And last but not least, don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know someone who's still thinking about taking the plunge and moving Or someone who's in the creative field and wondering how to get into tech. Or someone like me who's curious about how digital technology will impact our lives and how do we maintain our humanity in that digital space. Just click share and text them a link. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Keep staying safe. Love you, all. My is Peace.
0: Country, me my country, you can keep the rest. This is my country, my damn country,